Well, no, because he has been, not only because he's been to Valley Beat Midrash before, whereas we're very fortunate, but also from his readings and teachings, his writings and teachings. He is the Max Weber uh, Senior Rabbi of Sinai Temple in Los Angeles, named the most influential rabbi in America by Newsweek Magazine, and one of the 50 most influential Jews in the world by the Jerusalem Post. Rabbi Wolpe previously taught at the Jewish Theological Seminary of America in New York, the American Jewish University in Los Angeles. Those are the, are, if you're not familiar, the two big conservative rabbinical schools, and they're more than that, but uh, rabbinical programs from the, from the capital C conservative Jewish world in America. Uh, Hunter College, and also taught at UCLA. Wolpe, uh, Rabbi Wolpe's work has been profiled in the New York Times, and he's a columnist for, the, for Time.com. He regularly writes for many publication, publications, including the LA Times, the Huffington Post, and the New York Jewish Week. Uh, a very powerful writer, speaker, ambassador for the Jewish community, community, and we're thrilled to have him back with us this time virtually. We know that many uh, are here now and will still be joining virtually, and even more uh, thousands will get will get it via our pad, podcast and video. Our topic today, as you know, politics and Torah. What should we allow? What should we learn one from the other? So, Rabbi Wolpe, thank you for joining us. Thank you. Uh, great to see you. Great to see you, and uh, to see that you're well and your community is well. And I hope that you uh, you stay well. Um, and I I want to begin first of all by just um, before I get to the the specifics of politics and Torah just to talk for a second uh, about the situation um, that we all find ourselves in. And by that, I mean uh, the, um, the inability, I think, to gather together um, to study Torah is one of the things that, uh, that, that makes this, um, it's a blessing of technology, but it's also a great difficulty because Torah is an interactive uh, enterprise. Um, and you don't do it alone on a mountaintop. And so I realize the reason I say this is because I realize that a lot of what I say um, will be for some of you uh, objectionable and or controversial. And, and it would be better, and I want you to know that I honestly would prefer if we were in the same room for the give and take, because I don't expect you to agree with everything that I say. God forbid you should agree with everything I say. Um, but uh, but we'll do the best we can. And, and if any of you want to contact me, or uh, Rabbi Yankelovitz knows all the ways to get me, um, feel free. Uh, if there's something that I said that you didn't get a chance um, to disprove, uh, you can get a chance later. So I want to begin by making a couple of declarations about Jewish politics and, and politics and Judaism, and then try to support them. Um, but first, I want you to know the territory that I'm going to traverse here. First of all, Judaism either has all politics or none. That's my first declaration. I'll come to that in a second. Um, second, there is no statement on Jewish politics that you can make that you cannot adduce authoritative Jewish sources on the opposite side, none. When people say this is Jewish politics, what they're doing is some very selective editing. Um, and then third, a lot of what we think about as, as politics are questions that Judaism never had to confront and therefore, if we are honest, has no real opinion on because politics, the last time we had a Jewish state was quite different from today. Um, 
So let me start with the beginning, which is to make a distinction that some Jews are not entirely aware of, um, but we ought to be aware of. And in this, by the way, Judaism is much more like Islam than it is like Christianity. Both Islam and Judaism, in their core, in their origin, make no distinction, really, between the divinity of civil law, criminal law, and religious law, right? The Torah equally gives laws that are about theft and laws that are about prayer. In other words, civil laws, tort law, and also um, Jewish law, Jewish, what we would call spiritual law. They are in origin the same. Christianity makes the distinction. Those of you who have read the New Testament, remember, render unto Caesar what is Caesar's and unto God what is God's. That's why separation of church and state is a gift that was given to the world by Christianity, not by Judaism and not by Jews. And I will, I will tell you my pet theory as to why. So far, I haven't heard anybody contradict this, although I also... I haven't heard any other scholars propound it, but I still think it's true and it will make sense to you. Both Judaism and Islam grew up in the desert. And when you're in the desert, when you don't have a, an organized society, then all law is the same. Christianity grew up in the Roman Empire. Civil law was already established. Jesus couldn't come along and say, I'm going to set up courts for theft because the Romans would have said, what are you, crazy? Courts for theft or Paul or whoever you think invented Christianity, depending on your views. And I'm not getting into that one. That's, that's more politics than we need today. But it's clear that Christianity was in an already established civil regime and therefore could only speak internally. That's why... Jesus takes the external rules and makes them internal because the external rules weren't relevant if the Roman courts decided things. But that's not Judaism's way. Judaism was a society religion. You're going to go into Canaan and you're going to set up an entire society. So therefore, in some way, this is my first proposition, politics is everything in Judaism because everything is everything. There's nothing that is not Torah, not theft, not um, minimum wage, not, not, and nothing. It's all part of the same complex. However, however, um, what you find is that because that is true, especially on the right, I just actually read an article to this effect by, by an ultra-Orthodox rabbi named Mayor Tversky. Because that is true, unless you have a real Jewish state, and I'm not talking about Israel, because as you know, um, according to the ultra-Orthodox, Israel's not a Jewish state because it's not built according to Torah principles. I mean, maybe a Jewish state demographically, but it's not a Torah state. Unless you have a Torah state, you can make the argument that nothing is a Jewish political principle because it only applies where you're actually applying Torah. So that's why you could very easily make the case, and believe me, I'm not going to stop here, so I'm not completely making the case, that either Judaism is all politics or no politics. And, and Jews ought to be aware of this because they ought to be aware that Judaism's origin and Christianity's origins were very different. And it's part of the reason why their um, constitutional makeup is also different. It's why if tomorrow Rabbi Yanglovich and I have a phone call and we both say, you know what, we decided we don't believe any of this Jewish stuff. We don't believe any of this Torah stuff. 
How much less Jewish are we than yesterday? Not 1%, because it's a familial connection. It's not purely a belief connection. In Christianity, though, if you believe, you're part of the Christian community. If you don't believe, you're not, because it's not familial. It grew up in different ways and has a different standard. So that's relevant to politics, and it's also just interesting to think of Christianity and Judaism differently. It will allow you to understand why you can get a couple, as every rabbi has had, in your office, and the non-Jewish partner will say, I don't understand. His parents don't observe keeping kosher, they don't go to synagogue, they don't observe the holidays, and they still don't feel good about me. Why is that? And the answer is, in a Christian context, it doesn't make sense. But in a familial context, it does make sense because there's a different identity that is not only a religious identity, and that's why you have secular Jews, which makes sense, but it doesn't make sense in other traditions. Okay, with that background now, let's talk about politics and Judaism. One of the things that is uncomfortable for the left is that those who are most versed in Torah tend to be on the right. And therefore, for Jews on the left to say, it's not Jewish to be on the right part of the political spectrum, you have a real difficult hurdle to overcome because these are the people who study Torah all day long every day and they're on the right. For people on the right, there's a hurdle to overcome because those who, first of all, enact what we might call the, uh, the, the mandates of the prophets, which is when Jews spoke society-wide to Jews, right? That's what prophets do. And those who tend to have an effect in the world, which is what Judaism is supposed to do, are on the left. So they both have their yichis, as we say. They both have their merits, okay? Um, and, and I think that it's worth exploring that a little bit more to understand why we have politics on the right and on the left in the Jewish tradition and, and what they mean. Um, so uh, one of the things that has happened in modern times, and, and we should be aware of it, is that almost nothing transcends politics, maybe nothing in some people's view. Um, and that's partly because cultural space has evaporated. Nobody reads the same books, nobody watches the same movies, nobody listens to the same music. It's all um, balkanized, it's all indifferent. The only thing we all have in common is politics. And so politics has rushed in and taken up all this space that other questions and debates used to take. And therefore, what you find is that people who, um, who ought to have other allegiances and ideas are subsumed by politics. I know, and you know, that if I talk from the pulpit about politics, or I put it on my Facebook page, or I put it on Twitter, it's going to get much more reaction than if I talk about something less important, like, say, Judaism. Um, and that's just, that's the reality of our world. Therefore, what you find is characteristics and qualities that ab initio, from the beginning, you would think, would not be possible for people to overlook such as the character of the current president, which you think people on the right would never be able to overlook, or evangelicals would never be able to overlook. It's the same dynamic. 
becomes much less important because other interests predominate and political allegiances predominate. On the left, you would think you could not possibly support, um, first of all, there are questions about Israel, but also just certain political positions that the truth is you can't make a Jewish claim for them. So it is an absolute um, sanctified certainty on the left that abortion on demand is a Jewish principle. And I got to tell you, you can scour the Jewish sources back forth, up and down, and you will never find a mandate for abortion on demand. The best you can do is the health of the mother. And then if you want to make the health of the mother, the mental health of the mother, okay, you can't make it the inconvenience of the mother, not according to any possible Jewish source. And so on both sides, there are things that are inconsistent with their view from the Torah, but we overlook them because first of all, nobody likes cognitive dissonance. And second, because what has happened in the modern world, and this is, um, I, this is not a great revelation, I assume, to some of you, but it's incredibly important, is when you question your own side, it isn't only that you um, give the other side talking points, which is hard enough, it's that you betray your team. Your friends will be angry at you. And that is really hard because America has more or less divided itself up into teams. And if you're on team A or team B, you feel a certain solidarity. So one of the things that I think is really important to take from Torah lessons is the self-criticism is the valuable criticism. The people whom we venerate in the Torah, they were not the ones who criticized other people. They didn't yell at the Ammonites, right? They yelled at the Israelites. I mean, they yelled a little bit at the Ammonites, but mainly at the Israelites. And I, I mean, I, I despair of people whose only idea of political criticism is to say why the other side is terrible. That's not the prophetic spirit. The prophetic spirit is to say what your side is getting wrong, not what the other side is getting wrong. That's, there's no trick to that, no trick to lobbing things over the fence. Um, so what principles can both sides take from the Torah that they will enact differently, but, and here I think the principles are so broad as to be, um, I mean, look, that I, I also wanna say, even these principles you can argue with. Um, we don't like to know this or think about it, but in the time of slavery, there were distinguished and learned rabbis on both sides of that debate, not on one side of that debate. Um, however, the creation of all human beings in the image of God, that is the bedrock of Torah politics and Torah outlook on the world. Um, compassion for the widow, the orphan, the hungry, the needy, so on. However, how that compassion gets enacted and what it means automatically becomes complicated because the other thing that the Torah constantly struggles with is insularity versus universalism. How much do you take care of your own and tend to your own versus how open are you to the world? 
And even immigration, believe it or not, has been debated in Jewish sources over centuries. When there were towns and there were people who wanted to come into the town and the rabbis had to decide how many do we let in if we have power over this town. Um, because if we want to keep our character, then do we, and, and as you may know, when, uh, when German Jews were in the United States and all of a sudden there was a flood of Polish Jews, it's not like the German Jews opened them with wel uh, welcomed them with open arms. Um, in other words, as the old Yiddish saying has it, Jews are like other human beings, only more so. Uh, so. So what I'm saying about this is that Torah politics, to some extent, have to be shaped. They're not a given. They're not a given. Like, I have my political views, and you have your political views. It's not that they're illegitimate. It's not that you can't say, oh, because, because the Torah happens to have the opposite view, uh, uh, that you, there's a verse you can quote. So when, let me back up and put it this way. Um, some of you may know the old saying that the devil can quote scripture to his purpose. So Lewis Ginsburg, who was a great scholar of Midrash, said, the devil can quote scripture to his purpose, and if he were more learned, he could quote the Talmud too. In other words, there's something in the Torah and something in the Talmud to support virtually any position you want. So I'm not suggesting that you can't possibly find uh, a position for almost anything. But our job is to craft a political position while being intellectually honest that yes, there are sources that don't support what I'm saying, but I believe that the bulk of the tradition moves me in this direction. So for example, um, to take, I, I, I mean, Ravi Anglovitz mentioned that you're gonna discuss environmentalism. So environmentalism, can you find sources that could be quoted against it? Of course you could. But can you say that the bulk of the tradition is God gave us this world and made us stewards of the world and we have to take care of it? I think that that's eminently defensible, right? Now, how you take care of it and what you do, that doesn't mean the Torah supports a carbon tax, right? That's way too reductive. And my, my um, suggestion to you is that you don't use the Torah to micro policy argue, because that's not entirely honest. You can use it for the broad principles, because I believe that it does teach us broad principles. But for example, when two economists are arguing, the, uh, the minimum wage um, helps you know, workers at the bottom rung of the economic ladder, and the other one comes along and says, no, it doesn't actually, it puts them out of work when you raise the wage because business will fire them. I can't come along from the Torah and say, wait guys, wait guys, I have God's answer. Because even though the Torah, and this is a statistic that we, that Mayor Tamari, who's an ultra-Orthodox Jew who wrote a, a uh, he, was, he was the chief of Israel's bank, and he wrote a book about, uh, with all your possessions, great book on Jewish economics and very worth your while if that's an interest of yours. Um, again, it's Mayor Tamari and it's called With All Your Possessions. Uh, he, he liked to say, um, the Torah has over a hundred, uh, Torah has over a hundred rules on, on economics and, and maybe 20 on what you can eat. And yet all anybody talks about is kosher, kosher, kosher. And nobody talks about how we're supposed to behave in the marketplace. Um, but those kinds of rules, that you're supposed to be fair and honest in business, that you're not supposed to take advantage of other people. I mean, those sorts of things can be 
accumulated into a political position, right or left, by the way. I don't think that they necessarily are one or the other, but they can be accumulated into a political position that is coherent, that is defensible, and that you can call a Torah position without implying there are no other Torah positions. And that's what I really think in order to be effective, um, those who want to preach politics have to do. Because my own prejudice, and, and you may already have, uh, have determined this, my own prejudice is that rabbis who are leaders of communities, especially pulpit rabbis, ought not to preach politics. And this is a big argument that I have had with other rabbis who disagree with me um, from, the, uh, from the pulpit. But I will tell you why I believe that, that we ought not to do that um, in synagogues uh, as a general rule. Um, there are always exceptions, always, but they are few and far between. The, the reason that I think we ought not do that is because what it tends to do is to make the synagogue Republican or Democratic. And if the rabbi really takes a constant political position, people who have different politics are not going to feel welcome in that place. And therefore, it won't be a Beit Knesset. It won't be a house of gathering. It will be a house of Republicans or a house of Democrats. And, and I think that that's not good for the Jewish people. Now, you have to be able to say certain things. And there may be certain issues that a rabbi feels like he cannot or she cannot um, withstand commenting on, but I think we ought to be extraordinarily careful and remember that really the only Jewish political model that we have is a kingship model. And that that was a long time ago and very different from the world in which we live. And that democracy, even though, you, again, you can find it in Jewish sources, and certainly the Hebrew Bible as a political um, document has some valence, some power. Um, that's not, that was not what Moses was told to establish in Eretz Israel. God did not say to him, checks and balances. That's what we need, checks and balances. Um, so having said that, um, let, me just, uh, let me just sort of encapsulate this with a couple more comments and then hopefully we can have a, uh, have a discussion. The great Jewish political question and divide is something that I alluded to before that I want to elaborate on a little bit now. And that is particularism versus universalism. The problem with, um, the problem with most Jewish outreach to the world, and here, by the way, your rabbi is a distinguished exception, and I really do mean this. The problem with most Jewish outreach to the world is that the people who do it aren't seriously Jewish. And the problem with most people who are seriously Jewish is they don't reach out to the world. So what you get in the public sphere is people who don't know really what Judaism teaches or says or don't represent it in a serious way, but will make declarations about what's Jewish and what's not um, or, or won't, for that matter, make declaration about what's Jewish and what's not, and their Judaism doesn't matter. But the particularists who know Judaism very well um, tend to be also the insular 
and and the difficulty of this. And by the way, this is just to a great extent, although not as much true even in Israel. Um, if you look at the politics, the people, um, the the politics generally, politics tends to, to to be those who are less um, less Jewishly learned. In fact, it is hard to think of a of a of a leader of Israel, a prime minister of Israel. Ben Gurion knew the Bible quite well, but disdained the Talmud. It's hard to think of a leader of Israel. Um, maybe maybe Begin Shamir knew a little bit more, um, but who was seriously learned and thought of the Torah as opposed to the Jewish people as their as their guidepost to leading, because um, that combination of serious Judaism and serious outreach is very difficult to do. But if you ask me what is the ideal of Jewish politics, um, and, and Rabbi Yanklovitz began this session by mentioning the late Rabbi Sachs, uh, whom we both admired and both had critiques of, um, both because <laughs> we're Jews. Um, and as you know, you can't admire somebody without a critique, otherwise you're not Jewish. Um, but, but he was an example of somebody who was seriously steeped, obviously, in Jewish sources, and yet sought very um, systematically and significantly to reach out to the world. And, but that's a, it is a rare phenomenon. It's all too rare, unfortunately. And that's because um, if you're going to do that, you have to be fair. And, and by the way, Rabbi Sachs tried very hard to stay out of politics except for Israel. He was really careful. Israel anti-Semitism were just about the only political issues in which he threw himself 100% because he knew that you can very quickly lose your credibility if you claim political positions as Torah positions when in fact um, they're not so easily, uh, so they're not so easily uh, defended as such. Um, okay. So let me close with one remark, and then uh, hopefully we will have, uh, have time to, uh, to discuss this together. And that is, um, I have a sort of litmus test for whether your position is a Torah position. My litmus test is, if you were not a believing Jew, would you take a different position? Because if you would already take that position, then you're using the Torah to reinforce the position that you're already committed to, which is okay, but you ought to admit it. But if you, in fact, are taking a position that you wouldn't otherwise take because you feel like the tradition demands it of you, compels you to take it, then I think you can say, I am taking this position because I am a learned, believing, serious, whatever adjective you like, Jew. But that's really rare in my experience. In my experience most, most, and now the answer that most people will give is, well, the Torah shaped my values and these are my values. Okay, I get that. Um, but I still have some suspicion that a lot of us, our political values are in some way more fundamental to who we are than our Torah shaped values for some of us. And, and I know, I remember, um, I'm looking at the picture, some of you will remember this, but others of you blessedly will have no idea. Um, but I remember in 1964, 
the woman who lived next door to us in Harrisburg, Pennsylvania, which is where I was born, I grew up in Philadelphia, I was born in Harrisburg. The woman who lived next door to us, Mrs. Dunlop, I, I want to say a blessed memory, but, I, but, but we really didn't like her because when we hit a baseball into her yard, she would never throw it back. She would keep it. She didn't like the fact that the kids next door. So we decided she didn't like Jews, of course, but she probably didn't like kids. But, um, but her husband was a minister and she was to us like the Wicked Witch of the West, right? Because we were little kids. They had a Goldwater sign on their lawn. And when Johnson won, I happened to be outside when I saw her tear up the Goldwater sign. And for me as a kid, it was like the victory of justice over evil. Nothing less than that. I remember it that vividly. I was a little kid. I remember it that vividly. And that tells me a lot of kids all over America are having that experience in one way or another. And our political values are so deeply rooted in our childhood experiences that to, to shape them by Torah is, is a real enterprise. Um, it, it is a worthy enterprise, but it is a difficult enterprise. Finally, the great Torah value is that the world is superintended by a God in whose ways we are supposed to walk. So nobody is less than anyone else, not in ultimate value. Um, and uh, what we have is a blessing and you are supposed to earn as much as you can, not money, I'm talking about in this world, good goodness in this world and so on. Um, but you always acknowledge that we're doing it with things that are given to us and everything is a gift. That's why the Talmud says anybody who eats a piece of, uh, who eats, like has a piece of fruit without saying a blessing is a thief, because that's the price you're supposed to pay for the gift you were given. Um, and that attitude of combined um, gratefulness and respect due to others, I, I would say that that is the most important foundation for Torah politics. And, uh, and therefore, how we speak about one another is of enormous um, importance and value. And, uh, and that, that has become a profound challenge in our day, not only in our day, but in our day. Um, so those are at least a few of my reflections. I am, I am more than happy to take comments or questions or, uh, or objections. Um, thank you, Rabbi Wolfie. Thank you for, very much for that opening presentation. Um, incredibly articulate as always. Um, so we have 25 minutes. I'm gonna ask the first question and then I see a number of questions are already coming into me over here as well, which I, I will get to. So I guess my first question would be, um, who do, you, who do you see either alive now or from the, a just 20th century American Jewish life who you think did it the best, who actually did speak politics from a place of, of, of deep Jewish integrity and, and accuracy and nuance? What, what would you see as the best model? And then as a counterpoint, without naming anybody, um, what do you see as the worst model that you have seen that you think is quite destructive? Um, either current or in the past, again, without naming a person, uh, but you know, as, as what that okay. model looks like. So, and, then, uh, and then a third piece, and then just a last piece to that, uh, everybody kind of celebrates Heschel as this great model, Rabbi Abraham Joshua Heschel is this great model of marching with Martin Luther King and politics and prophecy, and, and, and how do you understand his legacy, and, and, and you know, his political legacy in this regard? 
So you, that was great because the answer to your third question is the answer to your first two. The best and worst model is Heschel. Huh. The reason he's the best model is because he had enormous, I mean, we forget, it took enormous courage and conviction for him to do what he did. Unbelievable, like, I mean, they, at, at the Jewish Theological Seminary, they thought it was ridiculous for a rabbi to go and march <laughs> in the Civil Rights March. So I think you have to give Heschel unbelievable credit, and, and he was a remarkable man, remarkable man. The problem, in quotes, is that he then provided, it's not his fault, a justification for every rabbi who takes any political position to, to invoke Heschel. And I, I honestly, it's like, I, I don't mean to say, this is going to come out stronger than I am sick and tired of people saying, I take this position, don't you remember about Heschel and the civil rights movement? And I want to say that was the civil rights movement, for God's sakes. Not everything is the civil rights movement. Right. I mean, that was it's a little bit different than than everything else. Um, so so I want to say both of those things. Now, I, I actually will give you a name um, for someone who I think was the. Um, was a bad model, but not. Not exactly um, and fully the way uh, that people understand, and that was Mayor Kahana. Um, Kahana. Who, uh, who began with the Jewish Defense League and then moved to Israel and, and created Kach, which is now outlawed in Israel as a racist party. Um, Kahana, <laughs> I almost want to say Kahana had something to say. The problem was, um, the problem was, was one of character. The problem was who he was. Um, I remember I was in Israel, I listened to Kahana and you could feel like the fulmination of somebody who was so angry, so deeply angry, um, and so misshapen in some way in character, that uh, that you, and, but very smart, and had lots of Jewish verses to support what he was saying, and Kahana was the opposite of Heschel in that sense. Kahana said, "You don't realize how threatened we are," and. If Jews don't awaken to the threat that exists, they're going to be um, they're going to be sadly surprised as they were in Germany. And people didn't want to hear that at first. Um, and Kahana used to insist on it to the point where he made those whom he saw as threats less than human. Um, so it's tricky. Uh, but I actually, if you ask me for a type, I think the type that I am most um, upset with are the type that so, um, actually, here, I will answer one of the questions in the chat um, by, by saying this. How can we as committed Jews not talk about the children who've been separated from the parents at the border? So, the answer is, of course, you can't. You can't not talk about it. But I think that we forget that people have very different lenses through which they see the world. And I could equally say, equally say, as committed Jews, how could we not talk about the fact that the previous administration gave billions of dollars to the Ayatollahs of Iran who want to bomb Israel and destroy it? And somebody on that side of the argument would say, terrible about 600 kids. Are you worried about 6 million Jews? And you can argue against it. Don't get me wrong. I'm not saying this is a clincher. 
all I'm saying is there are prisms by which different people on different sides of the political spectrum see the same reality. And until we understand that someone else, I read recently an article about all the things that someone objected to in Obama's administration. I have to tell you, I'd forgotten or wasn't aware of half of them. And I realized people pay attention to very different things. When you hear that someone you like does something you don't like, you ignore it. But when someone you don't like does something, you know, it's, I don't want to get into particulars, um, but but it's really hard. It's really hard to be able to hear the other. It's really hard to be able to hear the other, especially now. So um, that's why my I really value those who criticize their own side. We all know the criticisms of the other side. The question is, what in your position is bad? What in your candidate is bad? That's, that's the moral quality of someone your morality doesn't impress me if you're always attacking the people you disagree with. We all do that, and that's easy. But what about the people we hold dear? So if you're going to ask me about the person you don't like, I'm, I'm more than happy to tell you, um, you know, the areas in which I agree with you, uh, but I'm much more interested in what you don't like about the people you like. Okay, here's a question from our friend Ellen. Um, what about the broad principle of the sanctity of life in the Torah with regards to the science of mask wearing during the pandemic. How can we use the wisdom of the Torah to find common ground on this now, unfortunately, very politicized issue? And shouldn't our spiritual leaders at least promote this? Okay, so um, I'm going to come to masks in one second because it's a great question. Um, but before we do, when you talk about sanctity of life, are you just reminding me of something I had intended to say and didn't want and, and forgot to, but it's really, I think, illustrative of this whole debate, capital punishment. Most Jews oppose capital punishment. The Torah gives warrant for both, but clearly you cannot say the Torah is against capital punishment. You just can't, because it warrants death for all sorts of offenses. So you can go to the Talmud where, um, where Rabbi Akiva says, you know, if I was the head of the Sanhedrin, there wouldn't be a capital punishment like once in I don't remember how many years. And Rabbi Shimon ben Gamliel says to him, then you would increase murderers in Israel. Now that you don't have the capital punishment, then murderers increase. There's a beautiful example of you have the right and the left, both sides in the Talmud arguing with each other. You can't say only one side has the goods. Um, so I want you to know, by the way, I did give uh, a sermon telling people to wear masks. So I can hardly say <laughs> that you shouldn't. Um, but I didn't do it as a spiritual value. I did it because it seemed to me that the best experts in the field said that you should do it, right? Um, and the people who don't do it, it's not because they don't value life. That's the problem. The problem is um, they don't believe that the experts that I believe or you believe are experts are in fact correct about this and they point to other people that have said other things. And that's why it's become politicized. So I was on a Zoom the other day um, with a group that I'm with, the guy who used to be the provost of the University of Chicago and now he's the head of the uh, Vanderbilt in, in Nashville. And he said, you won't believe what a different culture it is from Illinois to Nashville. He said, here, Mask wearing, it's like every, nobody wears masks outside. He says they just don't do it. And it's not like 
the infection rate is spiked here and in Chicago it's nowhere. He said the culture is different and the culture is different in every state. So when we from our own enclave say, why don't people respect life and act like I do? The answer is they do respect life, but they really disagree with the orientation that we have. And that's why it is so unbelievably important for people to have friends of all political orientations, because otherwise we caricature each other. We, we say the people who care about life do what I do and the people who don't care about life don't, but it's not true. It's much more complicated than that. Um, I have a congregation, at least half of whom are Trump supporters. Part of it is because they come from Iran. Now that's, I mean, half my congregation. I also have Ashkenazi Trump supporters and I have Iranian supporters of Biden and, and, and Ashkenazi, I mean, it's divided. But I have a lot of people who support Trump. Now, what am I gonna say? What do you know? You only grew up in Iran. I grew up in Philadelphia. It's a different experience of life. And I have to listen to them and learn from them even if I disagree with them. So I think that that's, I mean, that's my, that's sort of my bottom line about this. Um, but yeah, wear a mask. <laughs> Great. So um, from our, from our friend Judy, uh, but aren't voting rights and equal access to voting an example of an inherently Jewish value, i.e. the recognition of equal rights of individuals? Yes, absolutely. But again, nobody will say to you, I'm against access to voting rights. They'll say, I want to make sure to prevent voter fraud. So I want this to be done and that to be done and that to be done and that to be done. That's what will happen. And so let me give you an example of something I heard this morning from somebody I, 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 I listen to podcasts right and left. This may not surprise you, right? Because I always want to hear what the opposite sides are saying. And so I have a good friend and I've written for the magazine before a commentary, which is a right wing magazine, John Potterts. And he said, 67% of Democrats believed in 2016 that Russia had stolen the election from Hillary Clinton. Now, 70% of Republicans believe that voting fraud stole the election from Trump. He said, but what you hear from both is, how could you say what you say, right? Because we are just and you are unjust. And we forget how universal these things are because both, both sides really want to win. They really want to win. And so we believe our own narrative and we disbelieve the narrative of the other. I include myself, by the way, one of those narratives I believe and the other one I don't. But, but we should just constantly keep in mind that nobody goes around saying, I shouldn't say nobody. There are bigots on all sides, right? There are bigots on the far left, there are bigots on the far right. I'm not making an equivalence, but there are, okay? And there are some people who don't want this group or that group to have votes. No question about it. We live in a country that has racism and that has anti-Semitism. I don't have to tell you. That's all true. But most people, most people really do think that the position that they are promoting is right and good. They don't think it's racist and cruel. So, yeah, I agree with your value, but you have to ask people who don't agree with your means, why don't you agree with my means? So one, um, thank you. So one question from, uh, from AJ here. Pierre vote warns us to be wary of politicians. Mm. So why is, it that we, why is it that we fall in love with politicians, 
even even those that seem to go against the spirit of Jewish ethics. So this is, I mean, this is a fascinating question. Um, I'm going to recommend to you eight minutes. Uh, Sam Harris has a really interesting eight minute podcast that I suggest you look up about why um, it's only part of the story, but why people like the president as much as they do, why they're so devoted to him. He, by the way, <laughs> to put it mildly, does not like the president. But he has a really interesting theory about this, and I'm going to leave you to, to, to listen to his podcast. And, and I say this as somebody who's debated Sam Harris. I, I know him and I, I like him, but we've also had debates about God and religion, and that part of him I don't like so much. Um, but, uh, but this is a very interesting theory. And what I would say is um, not only for politicians, uh, and you're right about Pirkevo, it says be wary of the government, and, and Jews have had lots of reasons to be wary of the government. Uh, Although I don't think, I think America is different for reasons that I will talk about in a second. When people say, could it happen here? The answer is no. And I'll tell you why I think that. Um, we have a deep, deep need to worship. We do. And it's not just politicians. I have seen it in, living in Los Angeles. I've seen it with movie stars. You see it with music stars. You see it sometimes, God forbid, with rabbis right? Um, there is in human beings a deep need to be reverenced and to worship. And right now, to some extent, because of the prominence that it has in our lives, which I think is unhealthy, I think the less politics is part of your life, the healthier the society. But right now, our society is dominated by politics. And so therefore, the dominant characters are going to be people whom other people will connect to. Um, now, maybe not Biden at, the, at this point in this way, but Obama, Obama was an object of worship, no doubt about it, um, uh, and, and Trump very much so. Um, and, and why it's so with Trump in particular and so, um, and, and stands out so much, um, I think Harris has a good, a good take on that I will, uh, I'll let you listen to. But the other thing about what makes America different, um, especially for Jews, and this goes back to the quote from Pirkei Avot, that we should be afraid of the government. It's not that Americans are better people than other people, or it's not that we have a constitution, other countries have constitutions, and on and on and on. But for most of Jewish history, there were Jews and Germans, Jews and Russians, Jews and Poles, on and on and on. That's not true in America. It's such a heterogeneous society that there are blacks and Latinos and Jews and Muslims and Christians and Catholics and on and on and on and, and, and Buddhists. And it is the very non-homogeneity of America that protects Jews far more than anything else. Are there people on the left who don't like Jews? Oh, yeah. Are there people on the right who don't like Jews? Absolutely. They don't like each other as much as they don't like us. But the broad swath of the middle has accepted the fact that there are lots and lots and lots of different kinds of groups, which is, by the way, why in, in surveys, Jews are also the most admired group in America. Um, so America is hard to figure out. Um, but for Jews, any Jew, any Jew that is not patriotic doesn't know Jewish history.
that's all I can say. So from our friend Erwin here, you said that Judaism is in part being part of a family, uh, is, part, uh, it, uh, is in part being part of a family. It, is it not, not legitimate that as Jews, we take positions based on our family experience, such as being the victims of oppression? So that as a family, we take a political position of allying with the oppressed, not from Torah, but from family experience. Yes, it's a beautiful question, beautifully put, and I totally agree, always with a caveat, because otherwise, why are you hiring me? Just to, you're not to agree with you, right? You say, let's bring him so he can disagree. I agree with you completely, except, it's like Rabbi Tversky, not the one I quoted earlier, Rabbi Avram Tversky used to say in the yeshiva, his, his teacher would say to him, you're right, you're right, you're 100% right, now let me tell you why you're wrong. Right? So same thing, you're completely right, except that what you can say is from our own tradition of being like oppressed, we are very aware of the dangers of anti-Semitism. And so while you might say we have to be on the progressive left because we have to care about the stranger, I say what I see on the progressive left is a growth of anti-Semitism that scares me. So you can get different things from the same family experience, right? Um, and it depends what it means to be on the part of the oppressed. I mean, I hear people talk about the oppressed all the time. Are they talking about the poor whites in Appalachia? They're oppressed. So it depends on your narrative. But having said that, yes, I think it is clear. You can't read the prophets. You can't read Amos, um, really. Uh, you, where he talks about you know selling the needy for a pair of shoes, and you can't be and you can't read the Torah, which says you were strangers in the land of Egypt over and over and over and over again without feeling what you expressed, Darwin, which is we have a special responsibility to pay attention to those who are oppressed, those who are hungry, homeless, bereaved, scared. So yeah, I sign on to that. Um, I am also aware that other people don't interpret it quite the way um, that you might. So, um, and, and I, I invite friends to send in uh, if they have any other final questions before we wrap up in a few minutes. You know, so one of the reasons Rabbi Jonathan Sachs of Blessed Memory might have said that anti-Semitism in Israel would be exceptions um, might be something about survival of your people, right? And there's more to say than just that as to why it'd be an exception. But I wonder, like, if there are groups in America who feel a threat to their survival, um, is it less political for them to speak about their welfare? And is it sort of a sign of privilege of, uh, by and large, of white American Jews that we don't really fear our, uh, feel our survivals at threat in America, that we don't, that we say it's not a survival, it's not a survivalistic instinct to engage in the political process in a way that other minorities more at risk would. Does that make sense? I think that that's, yeah, I think that that's a beautiful point. Um, here we come up against the, the horns of a real dilemma. And, and this is a life dilemma that all of us have faced. And I, I don't have a solution for it, um, but I leave it to you. That is, so much of what, ha of the situation we find ourselves in is not of our own making, right? I live in a building that I didn't build and I'm on a computer that I don't know, I don't know how it works. And, and for that matter, my, my genetics, like if you have a brain that works, you didn't earn that brain. All of it is just like given to us. We didn't. And so when people are born into difficult circumstances, it's understandable that we say to them, you have every right to feel grievance because you're born in difficult circumstances. And, and, and groups 
who face all sorts of threats, we, say to, we should say to them, yeah, I have privilege and you don't, and that's true, and you've been a victim of a society that hasn't given you a fair shake. The problem with that truth is that to think of yourself as a victim tends to depress the initiative that you need in order to get out of the state that you're in. Because when our ancestors, as Jews love to say, came to America, they were in a bad state, but they always thought, I got to get out of this. That's my job. Okay? So how do you both validate the very real victim status of people and at the same time say to them, but it is ultimately on you. Nobody can pull you out unless you pull yourself out. And that's a hard balance. It is a really hard balance. So um, look, we put up on, on the side of my synagogue, we put up a banner that said, um, Sinai Temple stands with our African-American brothers and sisters in the struggle against racism. Because we really thought it's really important, again, for people to see a Jewish institution say, we don't only care about Jews. At the same time, what happened in the city, the looting, the burning, the destruction was so destructive to the initiative of doing something good. And we're faced with this paradox of how do you validate oppression and also demand effort? And that's hard in an individual level. It's hard with individual human beings when somebody's, you know, you, I mean, you see this that every time somebody is sick or somebody has had a loss, you both want to say to them, yes, it's a terrible thing you're at. Now you have to pull yourself out of it. And, and it's a hard double message to give. And unfortunately, what has happened to a great extent in America is one side of the po political spectrum has taken one side of the message the other side is taking the other side of the message, and we need both. Thank you. Here's one, here's one last question today uh, from uh, Reb Herschel. Um, how does a Jew without extensive Torah learning express the ideas or values they've absorbed in Jewish spaces honestly? Um, I would say uh, the easiest way these days is you can find out your values and quotes from the Talmud, from the Torah, from the, from the great figures of Jewish history very easily, very easily. You can see what Judaism says about your values. Um, you can find, I mean, there are a billion books that say it, but you just Google, um, how does Judaism view, and you end up with my Jewish learning or something else, and you get a start, and then it goes on and on and on and on. Um, you really, you have all the resources at your fingertips. Um, one of the saddest things about our generation of Jews is we have more access to Jewish learning than any generation ever did, and we know less than any generation ever did. Oh, so what I understand your answer to be here is that there's really no excuse if you're going to speak in the name of Judaism to not offer kind of alerted nuance. Is that what you're saying? Uh, I think there is no yeah, excuse. Okay. If you want to speak in the name of Judaism, it's all there. It's yeah. all there. Right. Yeah. Okay. So when you, I mean, you know, I, I, I read what your rabbi writes, and when he writes, he always brings stuff. Now, obviously, he's a rabbi, but, but you know, you can read his writings. Quote him. Thank you. Okay, Rabbi Wolpe, we're very grateful for your time, as always. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you, Thank you for this It's been a pleasure. And as I said, if you have a question later, so email me. I'm happy, <laughs> I'm happy to talk about Terrific. it. Terrific. All okay, right. Friends, just a reminder that we have... Uh,
Dr. Dahlia Shanlan on Monday, can, can an Israeli-Palestinian confederation work? And on Thursday, Judaism and the environmental crisis with Professor Chava Tiroch Samuelson. Have a wonderful day. Okay. Be safe, be healthy. Bye-bye.